Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Abigail. We're sisters. And we believe in ghosts. Welcome to Supernatural Sisters, a podcast all about ghostly encounters, bone-chilling monsters, and basically anything that goes bump in the night. Each week, we talk about a haunted place, a legendary monster, or a story that sends shivers down our spines. And maybe we'll talk about the pottery scene from Ghost. He's not a ghost in that scene. There are other parts of that movie where he's a ghost. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And remember, we, we believe, believe you. you. Welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka. And I'm your co-host, Aaron. Bad Axe is brought to you by the Podmoth Media Network. Check out Podmoth for more great podcasts. You can support the show and get over a year's worth of bonus episodes over at patreon.com backslash badaxepod. You also get ad-free episodes that are a little bit early, so that's really cool. There is a link to our patreon.com account in our show notes and membership start at just $1. You can also support the show for free by leaving us a positive review and by telling a friend about us. Now, on to today's case. Today, we are going to Austin, Texas. Yay, which is pretty close to us. It's about two hours to two and a half hours away from Houston. I get to do shows sometimes in Austin, which is super cool. They have a lot of really great natural aesthetic going on in Austin. It's hill country. And it's interesting because it's both really rocky, but also very nicely planted with like herbs and stuff like that. Which sounds crazy, but it smells very fragrant when the wind blows because there's a lot of like flowers and sage grass, I think is what I'm smelling just smells really good in Austin. Maybe not like on the city streets, but in the area in general. It's really pretty up there. Yeah. In April of 2016, 18-year-old Haruka Reisner was finishing her freshman year at the University of Texas in Austin. She majored in theater and dance, and she was quite talented. In addition to the school's dance program, She also participated in a student dance team called Dance Action. She'd actually been recruited by the school's dance program after a scout saw her perform in an event called the National High School Dance Festival, which I thought was really amazing because I didn't know that they scouted dancers. But that has to be one of the most amazing experiences as a creative person. For those of you who have been listening a while, you'll know that I'm really into theater And just the idea of being scouted as being a really great performer, in this case dance, is just amazing for her. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, you know she must have been really talented. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. So she actually grew up in Portland, Oregon, and she decided to move to Austin, Texas to go to school there. I thought that was also cool because for anyone who's familiar with Austin, their motto is keep Austin weird. And I can definitely see the parallels there between, you know, Portland and Austin and moving there. Yeah, totally. Growing up, Haruka 
attended a dance school in Beaverton, Oregon called Dance West. And there she studied ballet and hip hop, which would be her focus. On Sunday, April 3rd, 2016, something very tragic happened, though, in Haruka's life because she disappeared. Oh, no. That night, she texted her friends at around 9.30 p.m. to tell them that she was headed home and that she would be there soon. She had a roommate in her dorm, and so that's where she was going to. However, she never arrived. The next morning, things got a little bit creepier. Because she also failed to arrive at her 11 a.m. class, which was very out of character for her because she took her studies very seriously. So after she had both failed to come back to the dorm and also missed her class, Haruka's friends knew that something was wrong. And so they called the police to report her missing. They were super duper worried. Investigators jumped on this case and started looking into it. While they were investigating, they were able to locate some very interesting CCTV footage of Haruka walking around the UT campus. Now, according to her movements, that Sunday night at around 9.30 to 9.45 p.m., she had left her university's drama building just like she had told her roommate when she called home. The video showed her walking from the building across campus along a familiar path that she often took near the alumni building to get back to her dorm. This CCTV footage was the last known sighting of her. Now, as we're going to later explore, there was also a man on the CCTV footage that appeared to be following Haruka. And that would become the police's number one suspect. But I want to put a pin in that because... We're going to explore this video in just a little while. Searchers began scouring the UT campus for any sign of Haruka, but they came up short. There was no sign, no sight, no sound, nothing of her all day Monday. And so the search continued into Tuesday. So she disappeared on Sunday. By Tuesday, we're still looking. Yeah, that's not a good sign once you've been gone that long, you know? Mm Mm-mm. Her family and friends wouldn't have to wait much longer for answers, though, because at around 9.45 a.m. on the morning of Tuesday, April 5th, 2016, the search for Haruka came to an end when UT police officers found her body near Waller Creek. Now, this creek is located near that University Alumni Services building that I told you about earlier, which was along the pathway that she often took between her campus building that she had classes in and her dorm room. Also, it's called a creek, but based on photos of the area at around the time this happened, it was more like a dry creek bed that also had some vegetation growing in it. So it wasn't like free-flowing water like you would normally imagine a creek to be. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, so this is where they located her body. Unfortunately, she was nude, And she had some wounds. The medical examiner who looked at her body was able to determine that Haruka died from beating and strangulation. It's unclear if her attacker struck her on the head first because she did have head injury from blunt force trauma. Or if her attacker had approached her from behind and wrapped a nylon cord around her neck first. Oh, wow. But she had encountered both of these injuries and the medical examiner 
thought based on where these injuries were, she was either hit on the back of the head or approached with the cord from behind. So she really didn't have a chance to fight back because this person took her by surprise. Right, right. One weapon was found at the scene. Initially, it was reported that there were no weapons, but later on, police revealed that they did find a hammer that was missing a claw. Oh, no. Holy shit. Yeah. So they had that as a weapon at the scene. After they found Haruka's body, Austin Police Assistant Chief Troy Gay gave a press conference after this body was found. During the conference, he asked the community to help the police track down Haruka's killer. They offered a $15,000 reward for tips leading to the arrest of this potential suspect. Fortunately, they did have some clues to follow, though. It wasn't like a, a case where they have no leads or it's just completely vague with no evidence. They actually did have some really cool clues. That's good. As I mentioned before, they had that CCTV footage of Haruka walking the UT campus on Sunday, and this pointed to their potential perpetrator. As Haruka walked past this young man that you can see on the video, he watched her. Like, he clearly looks at her and then follows her with his eyes. What happened next is haunting, because the man had a red bicycle with him, And he actually put the kickstand down after he saw Haruka and followed her. And then he just started walking behind her. That's creepy. More concerningly, though, he actually reached into his pocket and pulled out what appeared to be a shiny, rigid object. Uh Uh-oh. Yes. A hammer, maybe? Possibly a hammer, possibly a knife. We don't know. So he's holding this object and he's following Haruka. Now, unfortunately, this camera isn't like a motion camera where it just follows whoever's moving. So it only shows this one part of the campus. So as they kept walking, they eventually disappeared from the frame. Okay. But what we do know is that that was the last time that Haruka was seen. And she was, as police suspected, walking in the direction of her dorm along that pathway that she always followed. So the fact that she never made it to the dorm suggests that somewhere along that pathway is where she encountered whoever it is that did this to her. Yeah. Which, as we know, there's a man holding an object following her along that same path. Yep. So he's looking very suspicious. That's right. At around 10 o'clock p.m. that night, the man walked back into the frame where he left that bicycle. That is reported to be red, but some people reported it to look more pink. This time, his leg appeared to be injured because he was kind of limping along. And he was also carrying a duffel bag that he did not have before. Uh Uh-oh. Now, this will not shock you, but Haruka had actually been carrying a duffel bag that looked very similar to the one that the man now has. Yeah, that does not surprise me. Yes, shock. Shock abounds. (laughs) This man also appeared on campus again at around 11 p.m. on another security camera. This time, he was pushing his bike again and still had that duffel bag. Ironically, authorities had actually already found the man on the video before that they even knew that Haruka was missing. Well, that's cool. I know. So you have kind of this, like, interesting twist where, like, they're doing a press conference. They actually did not release all the information about the video. Originally, when they did their press conference to ask for leads, they gave the public part of the video and were like, hey, 
do you recognize this man? He was seen in the area. But they did not clearly make it obvious that he had followed Haruka and that it really seemed like he had done something to her. It was more kind of like he's a person of interest. Right, right. As they usually do. So, turns out, though, they actually had already interacted with this man. And the pieces would start to fall into place throughout this day. So, here's what happened when they met the man on the video. At around 8.21 a.m. on Monday, April 4th, which was the day after Haruka disappeared but before they had found her, firefighters responded to a call about a fire in a vacant building located at 2911 Medical Arts Street. And this is near the UT campus, by the way. It was originally a medical building that they were, like, redoing to open as a new facility. But at the time all this is happening, it was vacant. And so, and it also was under construction. There was, like, some construction crews there. They just weren't actively working on it at this time. So it was mostly left empty. Right. When they got to the to the building to check on this fire situation, they found a 17-year-old named Mishael Kreiner, and he was inside the building burning some items. They questioned him about this fire, because at this point, it looks like he's kind of, in a way, committing arson, but it was also a contained fire. Like, as in, he wasn't trying to burn the building down. He's, like, burning him in a barrel or something. Yeah, burning in a barrel-type situation. Yeah. So they confronted him about what was going on, and he explained that he was a homeless teen, and that this is where he was staying, and that all the stuff that was in there was, like, all he had in the world. So the police decided that because he didn't have a home and he was only 17 years old, that they weren't going to try to prosecute him for anything related to the fire or take him into jail. They decided to kind of give him a break here and were like, look, man, like we understand where you're coming from. So we're going to actually take you to a shelter. So they took him to the shelter called Life Works to try to help him get stable, you know, maybe get some schooling, find a job and a house that he can actually live in. And they let him take as many items as they could, you know, carry with them from the building. And that included a bicycle. But he actually had three bicycles with him in the vacant building that he said he had found. Wow. And they, they were like, and they were not like good bicycles, if that makes sense. Like some of them were broken. But they were like, look, man, we can't bring three bicycles. None of them could go to LifeWorks. But the fire department felt sorry for him. So they were going to keep his uh, bicycle at the fire station. Like, I don't know if you've ever had to interact with the fire department. But firefighters are, are usually, like, really awesome people. And they will make you feel really good about yourself, even if you did something stupid. I say that because I used to live in an apartment next. It was, like, in a fourplex, you know. And the the apartment next to mine had a lot of damage from one of the hurricanes that hit here. And the door was, like, actually not even locking anymore. Like, that's how bad the damage was. And a fire alarm was going off. And so I went over there to check if something was on fire. And it was the carbon monoxide detector. Like, it sounded like a fire alarm. So I panicked because I knew that there was a lot of damage in there. And it was conceivable that it was leaking carbon monoxide. Because of the hurricane damage. So I called the police department, or not the police department, the fire department to come down there because that's what you're supposed to do. And they came, they had the whole truck and everything, a whole crew, and they jumped off the truck and ran into the house and it just needed a new battery. 
<laughs> and I felt like a, an asshole. Like, I'm going to be honest with you. I felt terrible. Like, I'd wasted all their time and resources having them come down here over a battery. And they were so nice about it. They were like, they made me feel like I was a champion for calling them about this battery. So that, I feel like every experience I've ever had with the fire department, they're always, like, really nice and awesome. Also, my uncle was a firefighter. My uncle Donnie was a firefighter forever. So firefighters rock. And they'll also let you climb on the truck when you're a kid. Which is important, I feel like. Absolutely. Yay, firefighters. Yeah. So, in this particular situation, the firefighters were like, we don't want you to lose these bicycles that you have. So, we'll keep one for you. Point out which one you want. And he picked out a red one that was actually a women's, a woman's bicycle, but he had, you know, he had found it. So, he says he found it in a dumpster. We don't know for sure, but that's what his story is. So, the firefighters are like, cool, we're going to take this to the fire station and we'll get this back to you as soon as we can, like, when you can actually have it. Maybe after he leaves the shelter. So they take the bicycle and the police officer that responded to this call took him and the, their cruiser over to LifeWorks so that he would have shelter. And some of the items that were left at the building that he claimed were his possessions, they allowed him to put in a gray trash can that they left at the scene. And they ended up putting this trash can outside the building since he wasn't allowed inside anymore. And it was sort of underneath this like staircase area. So it was out of the elements and you really couldn't see it unless you knew where it was, was their goal. So that he would be able to come back and get the stuff, but it most likely wouldn't be rifled through or or, like thrown in the dumpster. That's important for later. Um, So this kid is off at this homeless shelter and the police need to connect these two threads, right? So... Since Haruka's missing persons report did not come in until after 11 a.m. on Monday, they did not know that they were looking for this man with a red bike at the time of this incident. Later on, though, these two threads would start to connect partially because of the heroes of the fire department. Because whenever that one officer gave the news conference, the fire department was watching. Not all of them, but there were firefighters watching. And one of those firefighters was one of the people who was at the scene when they encountered this teenager who was in the vacant building burning these items. And so he went to his fire captain and said, hey, I don't know if it means anything, but we were actually on the scene at a vacant building near UT where we encountered a young man who looks suspiciously like the figure in the camera and also had this bicycle that they're looking for. Maybe we should call this in as a tip. So the fire captain agreed and they called the police department to give a tip in the murder case, which I think is so crazy that the, I just imagine the fire department calling your tip line like, hey, I know, right? we solved your murder, which <laughs> <laughs> yeah. makes me think in Houston, our fire department mm-hmm. has been trying to get their pay increase forever. And the, the community has voted for this a million times, but the city keeps trying to push back on it, even though the firefighters deserve to have their paychecks raised and i'm just imagining them being like look we're doing the we're solving the crimes now too like can we finally be paid i know (laughs) a reasonable amount we would like to have our paychecks please so they call on this tip and so now the police know exactly where to look to find even more clues and evidence about this crime now they don't immediately go to talk to the boy right the teenager Instead, they go to examine these items that were left in the trash can. 
So they, they go back to this medical building. They pull out the trash can and start looking inside. And what they found is insane. So these items that were in the fire that this guy started included some rubber parts of a shoe that matched the shoe that she was wearing. They were Doc Martens. And so they were able to determine they were, in fact, these Doc Martens that she was wearing. Also, a sweater that had a receipt in the pocket and it had Haruka's name on it. Like this, a receipt did. Also, they found clothes that looked like the clothes that Haruka was wearing in the video that night. They also found items that the killer was wearing in the video. And they also found some nylon straps that were identical to the ones used to strangle Haruka. Wow. So he was trying to burn all that evidence. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's what the police concluded. But we will have another version of events at trial. So prepare yourselves. I got you. Um, so that is what the police concluded. So at that point, they tracked Kreiner down to a local shelter and they arrested him for Haruka's murder. When they arrested him, they discovered that he also was using Haruka's blue duffel bag, which, again, not only could be identified by the people who knew her and, like, her other things being there, but also it was literally in the video. <laughs> like, they can see her with it and then him taking it. So it's not a secret that yeah, it's hers. It's not a mystery. Also, he had both her laptop and a book that she had had in her bag for school. So he had both of those items as well. He also had a pencil pouch with her name on it, her calculator, and some flash drives that had her school assignments on them. So he just got all the evidence. Yeah. Like so all of it's it. It's a lot of evidence. Um, so let's talk about Mikhail Kreiner, our 17-year-old here. He was originally from Texarkana, which is about 300 miles away from Austin, if you were in a car, it would take about four to five hours to drive between the two cities. Back in Texarkana, he lived with his grandmother. And according to him, she was super religious. And because of her beliefs, she thought young people should leave home at 17 and, quote, make their own way in the world, unquote. What a great idea. Yeah. Now, he was reportedly living with his grandmother, but he also was in the foster care system. And had been in and out of foster homes as well. Based on CPS reports, his family had a history of abusing and neglecting him. And this isn't like a thing where he says he was abused and neglected. He literally, from the day he was born, experienced abuse and neglect from his family members. Wow. Yeah, it's really sad. Like, his mom lost custody of him when I think he was two years old. And he was, like, placed with his grandmother. And at one point, because his grandmother also was not good at this, was moved to an aunt's house, but she also wasn't able to really give him the, like, attention and not abuse that he needed. And at one point, his mom tried to come back in his life and try to get him back, but he did not want to go with her and was like, no, like, uh uh-uh. She's not a good mom. And then he, she like threatened him and told him that she hoped that he went into the foster care system and had the worst foster care home possible. Wow. Yeah. Like that's what we're dealing with here. Dang. Okay. So, yeah. So it really sucks because obviously we're going to talk about, you know, more about what happened to Haruka, which is the focus of this, but it is extremely depressing that this, this kid went through basically hell through his childhood. Yeah. And then his grandmother 
um, he, he's listed as a runaway this whole time. And it's confusing because according to him, his, his mom, his grandmother asked him to leave. And it turns out that the reason why he's listed as a runaway is because after he left, his grandmother basically gave no fucks about it until she found out that since she was listed as his guardian, she was going to be held responsible when he wasn't going to school. Because since he was basically kicked out of the house, essentially, he wasn't, you know, he was going to Austin. He didn't go back to school to finish his senior year. So she didn't want to have to deal with truancy stuff. So she went to the police station and reported him missing so that she wouldn't have to get in trouble for him not going to school. Even though she's the one who kicked him out. Yeah. That's, that is some bullshit. Yeah. So he's listed as a runaway. Also, before we move on to how he got to Austin, he also had at one point asked the court, the family court, when he was dealing with all this foster care stuff, to just remove him from his family's care. Yeah. Like, he would rather be in a foster home, even though those situations, according to his own versions of events, were also bad. Like, he did not have a good time in foster care either. But that was still better than having to live with his family. Yeah, that's really telling. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's horrible that this kid asked to be removed and wasn't because this clearly had an incredibly negative effect on him that would then, in turn, have a negative effect on Haruka. Yeah. Yeah. So... After he left his grandma's home, Kreiner decided that he was going to move to Austin because that sounded like a good idea to him. And so you're probably wondering, how does a 17-year-old who's living in an abusive situation travel 300 miles all the way to Austin? Hitchhiking. Yes, hitchhiking and walking. So he walked part of it and hitchhiked when he could. Which is kind of amazing, honestly, that he made it all that way, 300 miles without getting murdered or assaulted or any variation of this yeah that's true i mean i don't feel like i could hitchhike to austin and that's closer than this yeah that would be very difficult yeah very difficult i'm i'm just like i'm not that kind of person i don't think that i could do it i believe that you could do it because i believe in you and i know that you can do anything but that would be really hard. It would be. Also, please don't hitchhike to, to Allison. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we do know that one of the people who gave him a ride did come forward to talk about this because that person who helped him had been Georgetown police officer James Walters. Now, I will tell you, in case you're not from Texas, which is most of our listeners, Georgetown is technically a suburb of Austin. It's kind of north of Austin, and it's a little fancy. All right. That's what you need to know about Georgetown. So he had made it all the way to Georgetown and um, Officer Walters ran into him at, I believe, a convenience store and got to talking to him. And he, Kreiner told him, I'm trying to get to Austin. And so James Walters felt sorry for him. And so he gave him a ride to Austin and he dropped him off at a hospital, which sounds weird, but the hospital is apparently a place where people who don't have houses can go to like, recharge their phones and like use the bathroom and get cleaned up and stuff. This particular hospital accepts that like they allow that to happen. So there is a reason for him going to the hospital. Also, maybe he's more likely to find his way into the system at the hospital. There's a lot of positivity going on at the hospital. So when he dropped him off, Walters also gave him some money and a gift card to buy food. And according to Walters, he noticed that he was carrying a knife with him at the time. But nothing bad happened while he was dealing with the officer. At the time of Haruka's murder, 
Kreiner was living on the streets near UT. And he said that at first when he got to the campus, he did not even realize it was a college campus. He had just seen a bunch of buildings that looked nice. And he was like, this seems like a nice place to go. I will live here. So he decided to stick around and then noticed over time that it appeared to be a college campus, especially once he located the football supply room. Now, this football supply room would become important because whenever Kreiner found it, he noticed that it looked like nobody was using it. And so he started living there. And he had some of his things there and essentially made like a little camp for himself. He said he would go to the hospital during the daytime and he would like charge his phone and download videos to watch later, kind of get cleaned up. And then he would do whatever during the daytime and then he'd go back to the football supply room and kind of chill out and watch videos and sleep. Like he had a little routine established and he was amassing things there. Like he would go through dumpsters to find things. So he says he had found the bikes that he had in the dumpsters, which a little bit is backed up by some of them being broken, but one of them wasn't. So it kind of makes me wonder if he had taken that one. Yeah. But he, he found those. He also found, um, and this is going to be surprising to you, a hammer without a claw in one of the dumpsters. He found some nylon cords in a dumpster. He's, he, but he'd find other things too. Like he would go dumpster diving and he would collect these items and take them back with him to the football supply room. But what ended up happening is, is one of the employees who worked for UT uh, one day goes into the supply room to, to look at something and discovered that there was like a little camp in there. And that there were a lot of items in like a shopping cart that someone had clearly gathered. And that gave him a clue that somebody who was homeless was living in the building. And so he reported this up the chain of command at UT and was like, hey, someone's clearly living in the the football supply room. And they went out there and evicted him, essentially. They're like, man, you can't be here. You got to get out. So Kreiner just, he didn't argue with them. He just gathered what he could. He says he had to, to leave some of his things behind. He gathered what he could and moved on. And that's when he located the medical arts building that was being renovated. And it was empty and vacant and nobody seemed to be around it. So he just moved in there. <laughs> like, it, it kind of amuses me a little bit that the UT people are like, get out of here, man. He's like, okay. And then he just moves into another one of their buildings. This yeah. is going to be like a circle. So he moved into that building instead and started living there and was still doing the hospital thing, charging his phone, getting his videos, and all that jazz. He actually had found the red bicycle around the same time that he got kicked out of the football supply room. And that would later on be one of the things that was notable about his presence on the videotape. Because again, it is a red bicycle, so it's kind of noticeable. So he spent his days over at the hospital, spent his nights in the vacant building, and he kind of sort of had a life for himself. Now, after police arrested him for killing Haruka, Kreiner actually said that he did not do it. He denied being involved at all. And he said that he had an alibi. His alibi was that he had been at the hospital. I mean, as we talked about, he did go charge his phone all the time. He claimed that he had been charging both his phone and his tablet at the time that Haruka was murdered. Now, this would be a good alibi in theory because you might be able to find him on surveillance footage, except that the police checked into the alibi and were unable to confirm any of this. And so they continued to basically accuse him of being their man. Yeah, well, I mean, all the evidence is pointing that direction, right? Yes. So 
The case went to trial in July 2018, which, if you're keeping track, is a little over two years after the murder, which is kind of a long time when you think about it. Authorities had charged Kreiner with capital murder as an adult. And you might be wondering, oh God, this is Texas. Are they going to execute him? No, because he is 17. Well, he was 17 at the time of the crime. So he's not eligible for the death penalty based on the, you know, the Supreme Court has ruled that that's unconstitutional. Yeah. So he is being tried with, with capital, for capital murder, but his worst sentence that could happen is life in prison with, with parole. Because again, he's under 17. Well, he is 17. So the main reason why they had that long delay that I told you about, the over two years, actually came down to DNA evidence. There was a bunch of problems with the DNA evidence in this case. Investigators had actually recovered from some DNA from Haruka's body in the crime scene. But the crime lab had a problem because it turned out some of their staff were improperly trained. Uh-oh. Yeah, and or improperly qualified for the job that they held. So even though the crime lab is technically not affiliated with the actual governmental you know, case or whatever, they got in trouble for a lot of evidence that they had been processing. And so as a result of this, and the defense essentially challenging the results that they had, the judge ended up having to throw out a whole bunch of DNA evidence in this case. Wow. Yeah, that for sucked. like constitutional issues. Yeah. Jesus. It does suck. And so this this took a while for them to go to trial though because they had to argue all those pieces of evidence and try to process it and it was a whole big thing that they had to go through. So it was kind of a a blow to the prosecution to lose this DNA evidence that they were hoping to present at trial. However, they did have all that evidence that they found with Kreiner. They had his his whole situation over at the vacant building with the fire, everything that they found there, all that he had in his possession, all of her items. Plus they had the video footage that you know, it looked like him. I mean, obviously CCTV footage is not like a movie where you can clearly see the person, but like it did look like him on the video. And he had the red bike, he had the clothes that were in the burn barrel that he had been using. Like it's looking good for this guy being the killer. Plus they had something else that isn't exactly like direct evidence, but it's definitely circumstantial evidence that's very suspicious. They were able to find a story that Kreiner wrote that was on his device that was basically a sexual assault fantasy. Oh. Yeah, it was a horrifically, you know, completely offensive, disgusting depiction of a sexual assault that was written in like a romance fantasy type way for other people to enjoy and be like, hmm, assault. That sucks. Yeah, and also the prosecution made the whole jury listen to this whole story and be traumatized by it. Man, that sucks. Yeah. But, I mean, it was important evidence, especially since they lost the DNA. They wanted to show that he was in the frame of mind to do something like that to somebody and wasn't just, like, someone that, you know, happened to stumble upon stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because um, they were, the defense went a whole nother way. So they started by explaining that he had a terrible, terrible childhood. So they talked about his rough past and how CPS had removed him from his mother at the age of two and he had been abused by his grandmother. He tried living with his aunt, but that did not work. He was also bullied at school and he spent his school days fighting with his classmates. 
And he ended up having to steal basic items. Like he didn't have money for things like food or shoes or anything like that. So he was having to steal those things as a kid to have them. So like this is not a life that would a lifestyle that would lead to someone living a well-adjusted happy life because he did not get a good start. But from our perspective, I just want to inter- interject, I should say, that he has to be held accountable if he kill- killed Haruka, right? Of like course, we all yeah. agree on this. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's easy to see how he ended up coming violent, but at the same time it's not okay. To just, like, blame your past for murdering someone. That's correct, yeah. Okay, but he did have an excuse. He had a, he had an explanation about why he wasn't the killer, in case you're wondering. So, let's talk about the defense's version of what happened. So, at trial, Kreiner maintained that he was not the killer of Haruka. He claimed that instead, he had actually found some trash bags that contained Haruka's items and all of these crime items. And if you recall, he did go dumpster diving. So, I gotta say, props to this defense attorney. I mean, 10 out of 10 would defense again. Because this is a great argument to put forth at trial. To try to explain this. Because he has, like, all this evidence. It's, like, everywhere. Like, coming back and being like, he found all that. He's a dumpster diver. is genius. So, he claimed... This is the part where things start to fall apart, though. Because, you know, he says that he found the trash bags with all the evidence and with her items. Okay. What a normal person would do, I'm gonna argue... Is that if you found, like, let's just say three trash bags and you found some some crime scene. There, some of the stuff is bloody, right? There's a hammer. Well, the hammer was at the crime scene. But some of the stuff was bloody because, again, she was bludgeoned in the back of her head. And you there's, like, clothes from the murder that are going to have some kind of evidence on them. This kind of stuff. Would you keep that and bring it back to your vacant building? Or would you just keep the computer? I wouldn't keep the evidence. I mean, I understand why he would keep the computer. If yeah, he found he just a, got value. To yeah, it, he yeah. doesn't know anyone's been murdered. So if, if you did find it, it makes sense that you would keep the items that you could use. But it doesn't make sense to keep the evidence, ev- like the evidence of the crime yeah. part. Like the clothes that are yes. busted up and the hammer that's half broken. Exactly. Or, yeah, so yeah. you're probably wondering, well, hey, bud, why would you burn items if you didn't know they were from a crime? Right? Good question. So, this is his version of events. He claimed that he had just started the fire for other reasons. Not for burning the items. And that he had accidentally thrown her shoe into the fire. That he had pulled it out and been like, I can't use this. Toss. And just in the most epic basketball toss ever, it flew into the fire. And... Then also, and this is this is interesting, like her phone had been also in the fire and they were like, why didn't you, why did you crush the phone then if you just found it? Because wouldn't you want to use that, right? Because yeah. that's a good item. Why would you get rid of it? And he's like, well, I mean, it didn't fit my charger. And so I got mad and I smashed it. And then I thought, I'm going to go ahead and fire and burn it, you know, just for funsies. Yeah, I don't know, no, man. No, no, no. I'm not buying that. Yeah. No, I feel like that's like, that's the part where it falls apart for me. It's like, there's a lot of his story that I was like, oh, that's a good version of this. Could this be, could this guy just be a victim? And I'm like, wait a minute. Why were you burning the evidence though? Well, you almost got me. Yeah. <laughs> You're so close. You almost got me. If he wouldn't have burned it, I feel like I might have been like, hmm, maybe, maybe he didn't do it. There's also the surveillance footage, though. And also, I feel like that's why the prosecution made everyone listen to that disgusting story. Because that kind of goes to frame of mind. 
that it's unlikely that he both wrote a perverted story and also just happened to find the crime scene evidence from this crime that's very similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, what? A, how random is life? So, th- but that is his story, which is interesting. Now, the firefighters showed up, according to him, while he was just happening to burn these items. And I do need to note one other connection to the evidence that is important. Because remember how the hammer was found at the crime scene? Well, the people who evicted him from the football supply room were able to identify the broken hammer and the nylon straps as things that they found in that pile of things that were in the building. That they were like, what is this? This is garbage. And he was like, these are my items. So that is also another thing that was, you know, connected at trial. Additionally, there is the issue of some glasses. So there was a pair of glasses that was found at Haruka's crime scene that matched the glasses that Kreiner had received right before he came to Austin. Like before he left, he had been given a new pair of glasses. And he claims, because he didn't have them anymore. So they're like, if they're not yours, because he said they weren't, where are your glasses? Well, he says that he lost his in the supply room when he was forced out that he had to leave his glasses. But the investigators claimed that they were the ones that were at the crime scene. Now, later on, an eye doctor was brought in. I think it was the one that actually made the glasses, was brought in to testify that, well, an eye doctor and an optician. The optician testified that those were the ones that he picked out, that she, that she made them for him. And the doctor testified that the prescription looked like his prescription and it was a unique prescription. So it wouldn't just be like a whole bunch of people could have had that same prescription. Right. So the police argue that they're his glasses. Now, we won't ever know for sure because the DNA evidence was mostly thrown out. But it does seem like an interesting coincidence that the murderer had like the exact same glasses. On Friday, July 20th, 2018, the jury came back with a verdict. They found Kreiner guilty of capital murder. Because he was only 17 when he murdered Haruka, he couldn't get the death penalty. And so the judge sentenced him to life in prison with a chance of parole after 40 years. Later on, Kreiner appealed his conviction on four grounds. Okay, let's talk about this. Four whole things. Damn. Yeah, there was actually more originally, but he dropped some of it because some of them are a little bit ridiculous. But here are the four that made it into the appeal to the appeal. One, he claimed that the trash can contents should not have been included in the trial because they were obtained during a search without a warrant. And his, his uh, attorney had originally uh, filed a motion to exclude them, but the judge denied that motion. The appeals court said that because he did not own the vacant building or the trash can, that he had no expectation of privacy there. And so that was not an unwarranted search. And so he lost that appeal. Makes sense. Two, mandatory sentences are unconstitutional because the capital murder actually has a mandatory sentence of life in prison. And so they were like, it's unconstitutional. Well, he lost that too. And partially because he had a chance at parole. So it's, it's not like actually life in prison. Like he may get out in 40 years. Next, there had been a clerical error originally when his sentence was handed out since it was mandatory. It originally read life without parole, but since he's 17, that wasn't, you know, he was supposed to get a chance at parole. So they were like, we want a whole do over because y'all messed up the clerical issue. And the appeals court was like, nah, we just fixed it. You're fine. 
And then four, he claimed that he had discovered new evidence and wanted a new trial. And new evidence is something that can get you a new trial. And this new evidence was computer data, but it just showed that his computer could have been in use shortly before the murder, not during the murder. Yeah, so that doesn't really help Yeah, because they have Faruqa on video, and so they know what time she walked by. So, like, the time that his computer might have been in use, which the one of the experts had testified during when they were examining all this evidence, that the, the computer may have actually just been in his bag jostling around. But if it were in use, it was before the murder anyway, so he lost that too. So he lost his appeal and was remaining in jail. Since this murder happened, Haruka's family found solace in their belief that Haruka's murder stopped a serial killer. In his victim impact statement, her father, Thomas Weiser, said, quote, Haruka did not choose to sacrifice herself. You made that choice for her, but she did not die in vain. We will never know how many lives she saved through the events of her death. I wish she was here where I could see her, but I do find comfort in knowing that she helped to stop a serial killer in his tracks, unquote. Additionally, UT staff tried to beef up security and safety after Haruka's murder. However, they didn't have a perfect plan because I was inspired to do this case partially because of the incident we talked about in episode 86. If you recall, that was the UT stabbing incident where a, uh, a person, a student named Kendrick White, had a psychotic break and stabbed four random students in a highly trafficked area of the UT campus. And one of them, a student named Harrison Brown, died from his wounds. And that was literally a year after Haruka's murder. Yeah, that was such a sad case. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's hard to prevent everything that happens on a, on a campus that big, you know? Because, I mean, like, you can beef up security, but, I mean, there's only so much you can do. Because you can't be everywhere all at once. And, I mean, and that's hard thing to hear especially if you know god forbid you or somebody you love is the victim but i mean it's it's just a sad reality yeah it's just absolutely not not possible although to be fair i feel like some of these incidences it does feel like they could have done a better job yeah and and i do find it interesting that like most campuses don't have murders on them two years in a row and then they did that's kind of a little bit suspicious that's true. Also, how many vacant buildings do you have? <laughs> like, maybe do a better job of watching your vacant buildings, just as a tip. Pro tip. Pro tip. Yep. It's for UT. We, I feel like we can judge them, because as previously discussed in all other UT-related cases, Aaron went to A&M, and so he's required by law to hate UT, as it turns out. Which is funny, because our his sister and his sister's husband our brother my, my brother-in-law our brother-in-law mm-hmm. um went to ut and so we get them ut presents a lot for like holidays because they like that and it's kind of funny that you have to buy all the ut year maybe that's why they do it to torment you aaron aaron does not care about any of this yeah i don't really care i'm not one of those i'm sure that aaron only went to AM because his dad went there i mean i don't know if that's necessarily true but i mean i wasn't like a diehard A&M or bust kind of guy either, you know? Yeah. Okay. I got you. Well, I think this was interesting. And I do want to talk about something else before we go. I want to talk about the hatchet guy, the, the homeless guy with the hatchet. Oh yeah. The hatchet killer. Yeah. Which goes kind of goes with this because they're both unhoused slash homeless. Okay. So we finally got to watch that homeless guy with the hatchet documentary thing. And I have so many feelings about this, you guys. So many. First of all, 
it bothered me that everybody on this show was like incapable of recognizing that this poor guy has a mental illness. I know, right? Yeah, they're like the whole time like, well, his energy is so weird. Like, oh, well, he doesn't just sit there. Oh, he's peeing on things. And I'm like, yeah, because he fucking has a mental illness. Like, how are you not noticing this? They really needed to have a mental health professional to commentate, commentate, to comment about what was happening because there were clear issues that were occurring. Like, it, as someone who has experienced bipolar disorder it made me kind of i mean obviously i'm not trying to diagnose him but it reminded me of bipolar disorder because whenever he was like really you know erratic and was having crazy energy quote unquote it seemed like he was having a manic episode and then he would have like those like down periods where he was like everybody neglected me everyone i'm i'm experiencing all these traumatic things or whatever and like get really like existential and it's not I'm not trying to say that that's everyone's like presentation because it differs from how I you know, have issues, but it just reminded me of that and kind of seemed like that could have been what was happening. And for some reason, nobody was paying attention. Yeah. It was weird that nobody brought that up during the whole documentary. Yeah. They're like, why? Why? Wow. This guy, he just is so different. He's, his energy is crazy. It's exhausting to be around him. Now he's jumping up and down. Now he's running into the road. Oh, he just gave away all of his stuff. It's like, yeah, because he fucking has a mental illness, guys. Like, is no one noticing this? Like, don't get me wrong. Like, his, his interview was very entertaining. And he's like, and I smash, smash, smash. Like, that's entertaining. Oh, it's very entertaining. Yeah, he's an entertaining guy. But at the same time, he was clearly having some problems. And it just was confusing to me that at no point did they explore any of that. They're like, oh, well, he drinks a lot. I'm like, yeah, to deal with the mental health issue. I know, right? And, like, that's some alcoholic shit. Like, down in that beer and, and, like, alcohol and Jack Daniels and stuff, the way that he did, you don't do that if you're, like, a casual drinker. Like, that's some alcoholism. <laughs> yep. Like, y'all need to get this man some help. And then it it clicked for me whenever he talked about, like, he had said that his mom would lock him in the room. And even though she had her lie version... Where she's like, oh, I only locked him in his room for like a minute to, for his own safety while I was asleep. Bullshit. Also, what the hell? Um, but his cousin was able to speak up and say that he had also been locked in the room and described it as being in the afternoon time while other kids were out playing. So we believe that he was in fact locked in his room like he said. And he described at one point as having a bucket, which is we've obviously experienced that before in some of the cases we've covered where people are having to ha be in their room with just a bucket. And to me, that made more sense about why he's peeing everywhere because I know that he's used to living on the streets. So it makes sense at first as like a person who's living on the streets that he would just whip it out and pee. But the part that I thought was weird is whenever he had access to a bathroom, like when he was like at the hotel or when he was in the bar that he, where he was performing his music set, the bathroom would have been more convenient for him to go pee than like trying to pee on the bushes by the building. And I think that because he was locked in his room, like he says he was with this bucket, I don't think he has bathroom habits. Like, I don't think that like he has those pathways in his brain that say, Oh, I have to pee. Let me go to a bathroom. I think that he instead is used to looking for these other places to go relieve himself. That makes sense. That's just what he was raised doing. And I, it just makes me really sad 
that like he had this really traumatic break, you know, break uh, upbringing, which kind of also connects to our our guy in the story here, Kreiner, who also had a traumatic upbringing. Like you end up learning all these improper living strategies and it can really hurt you and it makes me sad because I I think he probably did commit the crime that he's accused of at the end but I don't think that he had a fair like trial slash sentencing slash verdict slash all that shit yeah and it makes me really frustrated that at no point do they address any of the mental health things and also, I get so tired of when we're listening to the police on these things say things like, well, why didn't they do this? Why would you go back to this situation? First of all, what other situations does he have? Like, we covered a case on here. I think it's episode number four. It's the one about Kevin Bacon, where a mentally ill guy basically um, murders him and cuts off his penis. And there were multiple prior instances where this particular mentally ill person had tried to lure guys to his house uh, with the pretense of sexy times and then murder them. And several of them had run out of the house and gotten away. One of these guys who had gotten away had traveled to the city where he lived, where the, the killer lived, and had was intended on spending a week with the killer's boyfriend. But the boyfriends, they had broken up in the meantime. So the killer guy was basically going to take advantage of the situation and have him come to the house. So this guy goes back to the house and gets locked up in this sex dungeon and was like chained to a wall. He manages to get away and run out the house and the police come. But he doesn't want to admit to them what was happening because the police are too judgy. And he stopped judging people for having different sexual desires slash fetishes slash kinks than they do. It's okay for people to be gay or to want to be doing like vampire sexy stuff or whatever it is they're into. That's fine. Don't be judging everybody because then they can't report crimes. Anyway, so this guy escapes from the dungeon and then calls the cops. The cops get there. He can't fully explain what's happening because he's, you know, he's worried about being judged. And the police are like, sounds like a domestic thing. Don't fight with each other. And the guy had nowhere else to go. Like he didn't, his train ticket that he used to get to the city what didn't have a return trip till the next week. So he had to find somewhere to stay and he didn't have any money. So he went back home with the guy that just tried to kill him. That is a thing that happens. Like there are domestic abuse victims all over the place that for a while have to go back. It's, it's the only choice they have is to go back with their abuser. And it's just so toxic to have police officers be like, why would this person stay with someone who's abusing them? Because that's what people sometimes have to do. Also, I'm not saying that the victim in that story necessarily was doing anything wrong. I don't know for sure. It could have been a PTSD situation where this the hatchet-wielding guy was experiencing a flashback from something traumatic that happened to him. But we'll never know for sure. And I feel like we'd know more if they had gotten him proper psychiatric treatment. And it's just, it's, I don't know, it was just a depressing documentary. And also, it wasn't that well put together. So, I don't know. Do you have any more opinions, Aaron? I agree with you completely. I don't have anything else to add. I mean, I think you covered it pretty well. Yeah. I wanted to record this closer to when we actually watched it so that I could, like, really share all my feelings because I had a lot of thoughts, you guys. I feel like a lot of our listeners did, too, because I think we were kind of late to the documentary. I was seeing other people chatting about it, and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to get spoiled. I better hurry up and watch this little guy. 
I hope that we did not spoil our you, but if you haven't watched it, go ahead and watch it. There, I feel like you won't regret it. You might be angry at things, but I mean, where are you not going to be angry after watching true crime? Like, if some, everything goes well, someone still has died. Like, in this case, Haruka, which is so depressing. And she, she much she has such a promising future. And everyone says that she was really awesome. So, it makes me sad that she has passed. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel like I have talked too long. So, we're going to let you guys move on and maybe listen to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash badxpod. There's all kinds of cool stuff there. We do a mini episode every month. A lot of months, they're pretty long. They're not quite that many. Also, we do a full bonus episode every single month, and I try to save the best ones for Patreon just being real, so I make an effort to have something really good and juicy. Also, we do, if you do the $10 up, there's a $1 level, a $5 level. If you go all the way to $10, then we do a recent crimes rundown slash current events episode with several more current crimes every month, and we talk about those. It's pretty interesting, so... Definitely check out the Patreon. And for 2023, we're working on having some more Patreon excitement. So keep your eye out over there. Also, we have an email. If you would like to email us, it's badaxpod at gmail.com. We're on social media at badaxpod. And also, we have a website, Air Bear. Do you want to tell them about the, the website? It's badaxpod.com. Go check it out. Yes. Also, you might, if you look at my my instagram get to see our kitty cats and right now baby ash is saying hello he is over here cuddling with us because he crawled on us and what else are we gonna do so hopefully you don't hear him purring or maybe you want that i don't know i don't know your life all right peoples we will see you soon Bye bye